In the legends of the quest for the Holy Grail, there's a particular story about a young knight named Parsifal. Now, this is a very, very ancient story, and it's been retold many times over the many, many years. And uh, Richard Wagner, the German uh, composer, did an opera about it, and Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, wrote about it, and Tara Brock, who is someone who has taught me a great deal about meditation and insight, teaches about it. And in this particular story of Parsifal, he is most often told as kind of an innocent, not an unknowing young knight, but someone who is simply very, very open to the world. Now, in this story, Parsifal, in his quest for the Holy Grail, comes upon once a kingdom, a kingdom that is laying in absolute disrepair, a place that is much grayer than this day, a place where a gloom seems to have settled upon the land and people are indifferent to each other and do not respond to one another. And truly, it is a place in which the life force seems to have been sucked out of it. At the center of this sad kingdom is a castle. And at the center of that castle is a king who is laying upon his deathbed, seemingly with every second the life force being drained from his body. Parsifal, not knowing what to do and being trained in a society in a time in which you never questioned your elders or those of a better or higher social standing than you, simply is mute seeing this sad dying king and leaves on his way to continue his quest for the grail. Now, as often happens in stories like these, he wanders into the wilderness and in his wilderness, he meets a sorceress and the sorceress starts screaming at him, starts yelling at him, badgering him. Why did you not inquire about what's going on with the king? And so Parsifal, against his own social instincts, turns back on his heel and goes back to the kingdom and goes back into the castle and gets down on his knee and simply takes the king's hand and said, Lord, what ails you? And with that, the life force, the color, the energy returns to the king. And at the same time, the king comes back to life. The entire kingdom seems to wake up at once. Life is back in that detaining kingdom. All because Parsifal, the young innocent knight, asked the question, What is really happening here with you? I thought of this story this week, the story of a devastated land and a knight capable of helping to heal it, and thought about the city of Gotham and Batman and this final piece in Christopher Nolan's epic, and I do underline epic, Batman trilogy, The Dark Knight Rises. Now, I am not going to try to recap the plot for you. One, if you haven't seen it yet, I don't want to spoil it for you. Two, I can sometimes go on too long anyway, and I certainly would go on too long if I was going to try and recap the plot. It is too ambitious, so let me just say this, that one of the key aspects of this movie, one of its key grounding stories, is one of the great novels of of all time, Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, talking about the promise and also the perils of the French Revolution, the high aspirations with which it began, 
and the depths of depravity to which it sank. I mean, this is a movie that I especially love for many reasons, but one, especially in this very polarized time in which we are in, it has enough things to piss off people on the left and piss off people on the right. I mean, it shows the, the elite of Gotham, the economic, the financial elite, the political elite, completely disconnected, completely self-interested, and also at the same time, the revolutionaries who, in the name of a supposed liberation, sacrifice all notions of decency and justice and kindness. There is something in this movie to annoy anyone of any political stripe, and that is just one of its great qualities. See, in Gotham, the regime that the movie starts out in, that corrupt regime and replaced by an even more corrupt regime, what they have in common is this. They both rest upon lies. They both do not tell the truth about how they came to power or what their aims or ends are. Both the mayor of Gotham and Bane, the arch-villain who takes over and puts all of Gotham in peril. This is a story about broken trust and betrayal and what happens to people who live in a situation of broken trust. Now, of course, one of the stories that is so attached right now to The Dark Knight Rises is a story that no one wanted to see coming and no one could really see coming, which, of course, is the shootings in Aurora, Colorado. A happy event, a midnight showing. So much enthusiasm, and we all have lived with those stories and those 12 people dead and the many people injured and their loved ones in the now nine days since those shootings have happened. There's actually a connection, not so much direct but implicit, between some of the responses to the Aurora shootings and some of the themes of what, of what is this very great movie. David Frum, some of you might know him. He's a thinker with whom I do not agree very often, but he's someone whose opinion I respect. One of the things he lifted up this past week on a blog post about not so much Aurora itself, but the responses to the shootings, the societal responses, is this. He said a couple things are curious. He said on the one hand, on the one hand, crime is way, way down from its apex in the 1960s and 1970s, and gun ownership is quite a bit down as well, too. But when you ask Americans, is our society safer right now? When we're polled, we say no. It's a more dangerous society than it was 30, 40 years ago. And it's simply not true. We are objectively safer. And yet, en masse, we feel less safe. Why? There are many reasons. But for me, it highlights of all the different kinds of deficits that our society is living in with right now, that there is a signature one. And until we begin addressing it, I'm not sure we'll make any other progress with the other deficits, which is a deficit of trust. We are very often a fearful and suspect people, not necessarily one to each other or with our local communities, but taken as a whole, there is not a lot of trust in our society right now. And I should say with good reason, 
There have been serial betrayal after serial betrayal after serial betrayal. Diana Butler Bass, who is someone I respect a great deal, she analyzes how these changes in our society over the last few decades have affected religious affiliation and spiritual belonging and spiritual behavior. She quotes from a Time magazine article that maybe some of you saw a couple years ago, and it merely had the title, 2000 to 2010, What Happened? And it charts the course of that difficult, difficult decade, starting with the election of 2000. I lived in Florida in that time. And if we had thought that democracy had its act together, well, that illusion was taken from us. And then, much more painful, the national security failures of 9-11, the intelligence and journalistic failures of the Iraq war, on up through the political and economic failures of the Great Recession, to this point right now that the trust in our political leaders is the lowest since we've been recording such things. But it's not just the political leaders. Since 2007, there have been two groups that have really suffered steep declines in their level of trust. One, you might guess, bankers. Not so well thought of right now. But you know the other group that has suffered the steepest decline? Clergy. (laughs) With good reason. With good reason. All the stories we've heard of moral hypocrisy of pastors and their churches, and it's not just Christian churches, these Betrayals of trust have been happening in ashrams and in temples and in synagogues. And of course, the biggest of all of them, not just the betrayal of trust, but the betrayal of lives in the Catholic Church who chose to protect their priests over the lives, the bodies and the spirits of their own children. And recently, and I know some of you, this hits really close to home. We can add university administrators And formerly beloved, indeed even iconic football coaches to the list of those who have betrayed our trust. Add all this up together. And I think what we find is it's not just about serial lies. Serial betrayals. Untruths on top of each other, on top of each other, on top of each other. But what we have as a society is actually serial Grief. One broken trust after another broken trust after another broken trust. And when you really scratch the surface of what trust means, and not just what it means, but what it feels like, what trust feels like, and what trust is about, we get to the heart of the matter. Diana Butler Bass talks about this in her writing that the word believe, which very often, maybe you have people ask you, do you believe that, you know, for example, Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And is atonement for your sins. I mean, there's a way to make that a kind of intellectual argument. Say, yes, I believe it. Or no, I don't believe it. But the word belief, believe, is actually based on an older word. The word believe, when we scratch its surface, means beloved. To believe in someone to believe in country, to believe in a football program, to believe in a spiritual community. And to have that trust betrayed is more than just an intellectual exercise. It is an opening of our hearts. And when our hearts are lied to, our hearts break a little bit. 
And when our hearts are lied to a lot, our hearts break a lot. The Hindu, Buddhist, Jain word for faith, sadha, it translates into what we set our hearts upon. Belief and trust is not an intellectual exercise. When our trust is broken, our hearts are broken. I love the song that we've done here before in the past. Don Henley, The End of the Innocence. He has a neat little thing all throughout that song, rhyming lie and die. And it's not just because they rhyme together. It's that because when we exist in a culture, in a place with people with whom we break trust or break trust with us, it is the death of something. Very often the death of our ability to connect meaningfully. And so this morning I think of that devastated mythic land that Parsifal entered And I think of Gotham, and I think of our own society right now, not all the same, but having more in common than I think any of us are happy with. Even the last two Batman movies, not just this one, but the one came out four years ago, they have a lot of grief associated with them. A lot of grief. Some of you might remember that in the week that The Dark Knight was released four years ago, There was a shooting in a church, and not just any church, but a Unitarian church in Knoxville, Tennessee. Fewer people died than in Aurora, but just as devastating, just as awful, just as much another example of a safe place becoming safe no longer. And even closer to home and closer to many of our hearts, that same week, in which The Dark Knight was released July 2008, a child of this congregation, Hannah, sweet and wise beyond her years and a blessing to the world, was killed not far from here, right on Route 100, by a drunk driver. She had just seen the dark night with one of her sisters and was driving around as we would all hope to be able to safely drive around. And then her life was taken from her. When our trust is betrayed, our hearts break. When we grieve for lies told us or lies committed against us, it is grief. It's not an intellectual exercise. And so that plaintive question is real. Where are the strong and who are the trusted? I mean, our society shows so many signs of grief, so many addictions and so much anger and so much numbness. This is what happens when grief is piled upon grief and grief is piled upon grief and people do not have an opportunity to heal. We are a grieving nation right now. Perhaps we don't even know why until we start to take a look at all the ways in which trust has been betrayed. That's what happens in The Dark Knight Rises. It is the lies of the people who control Gotham that allows another lie through Bane's viciousness to come to life and flourish and then lie some more. They are both based in 
misguided understandings of what makes a hero, of people who can promise to take care of things, and it is so far beyond their control because reality is always bigger than what any of us can control. One of the characters, one of the wisest characters in the movie says to Bruce Wayne, stop trying to outsmart the truth. And yet our leaders try and do that over and over and over again, thinking they are bigger, smarter, wiser than the truth, and the lie won't catch up to them or to us. I have said this before, and I'm going to say it again today, and I will say it again probably more than once before the November elections, just once, just freaking once. I want a politician on the stump to say, this is my idea, this is what I've tried, this is what I'd like to try, and I don't know if it's going to work. Wouldn't that be refreshing? I don't know if it's going to work. It's the best I could come up with it. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. Contrast that overweening pride with Parsifal, who becomes a hero because of his willingness to make inquiry. He only asks, what ails you? And then the kingdom starts to come back to life. This is a true warrior, not the silly understandings of warriorship that we get in our society. Curious enough to get in touch, as another character in the movie says, if you want to save the world, you have to trust it. If you want to save the world, you have to trust it. And that's another meaning of that word sadha, that Hindu, Buddhist, Jain understanding of faith. It means also hospitality. I mean, just, just do this right now with me. Open up your hands and hold them out to the world. That's hospitality. The ability to receive life and give life open-handed. You can keep doing it. You can take your hands down if you want to. You see, if you want to trust... Make ourselves a little vulnerable. If we want to believe, we have to be love. James Ishmael Ford, who is a Unitarian Universalist minister and also a Zen priest, has influenced many of us over these last few decades, just came out with his book about his spiritual path over the last three or so decades. And it's got a wonderfully evocative title. It's called, If You're Lucky, Your Heart Will Break. If you're lucky, your heart will break. Kind of like one of his Zen koans that he studied over the years. And why lucky? It sounds the opposite. If we're lucky, our hearts won't break. And I think this is part of the meaning for what he's saying, which is that only a heart that can love is a heart that can be broken. And this is really the key of all spiritual practice, which is that when we recognize that our hearts have been broken because to be human is to, even if it's not huge things, even if it's small things, is from time to time to betray trust and have our trust betrayed. So at that moment when our belief and our beloving is injured, that's the practice to keep our hearts open and not become cynical, not numb out, not push away. To remember in the words of the great Buddha songwriter Leonard Cohen, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. There is a crack in everything. That is how the light gets in.
I don't want to say too much about James Holmes, the young man who took the lives in Aurora, except for this. We see that, in fact, we are lucky that our hearts will break because his heart could not break, would not break. We'll probably be debating his reasons for decades and never come exactly to what it was. But one thing is true. His understanding and experience of his suffering was such that his own heart could not break. So he raged against the world and he took innocent lives. He would not allow his heart to break. To allow our hearts to break is to know that at one point, at some point, we have to engage in that sometimes emotional game of chicken. Who's going to trust first? Who's going to present vulnerability first? Who's going to open up first? Not knowing what we might find on the other side. I mean, I tell you, completely convinced of the rightness of my perspective, completely convinced that I want to see more gun control measures in this culture, in this country, especially with the kind of armaments that James Holmes was able to get his hands upon and the vast amount of ammunition that he was able to gather. But you know what? I know there are people who are ardent defenders of gun rights whose hearts also broke when Aurora happened and their hearts are still breaking. And probably we'll just talk right past each other because we'll keep it on an intellectual level and we'll talk about, well, Great Britain versus Switzerland versus Japan versus the laws in the U.S. And what would it look like? This is my vision. This is my hope. It's probably not going to come true. Is that if we can ferret out at least the ideologues, the people who lie for a living, and yes, there are those people, and they are on the left and they are on the right. But to gather in conversation with someone who does not believe, quote-unquote, or think like me, and talk about and ask them, how does your heart break after Aurora? What ails you? What do you beloved? It is an ancient Unitarian and Universalist hope, first given voice by a guy named Francis David in 1569, who said, we need not think alike to love alike. That is a hope. That is a deep aspiration. And it changes the world. And yes, it does break our hearts in all the best ways. There was a story about a decade ago about Palestinian children and Israeli children who had both in their families lost lives because of the battle between those two people and between those two cultures. And they took those children out of their cultures and they put them into an intensive environment knowing that they would not start out from a place in which they trusted each other at all. And you know what they did? They told their stories to each other. They told their stories as Parsifal asked, what ails you? And at the end of the month, the month they were together, when the Israelis and the Jews would speak of their ailing stories, the Palestinian children would cry. And when the Palestinian children would speak of what ails them and their pain, the Israeli children would cry. If we are lucky, our hearts will all break like that and we might actually open up some space and start to move beyond all the ways that we are stuck in our grief and stuck in our betrayals. Maybe you've heard this story as well, too. It said that in Washington, politicians say they don't hang out with each other as much as they used to. Used to be back in the day, they'd go out drinking together and maybe get into some trouble together or they'd go singing together or they'd spend social time together. 
Now they don't do that. And it's not an accident, I think, that they do not want to trust one another. Maybe that is the deepest pall cast over our land right now. That because we see the other, the other whether a conservative, the other whether they're a liberal, the other whether they're gay, the other whether they're straight, the other whether they're an undocumented worker, the other as the threat. Whereas our side has a monopoly on virtue. All the good-hearted are here. All the ideologues elsewhere. And I got to tell you, his thoughts don't ring very often in my ears, but I'm hearing Dr. Phil right now. (laughs) Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? We have so much energy invested in making sure that we are right in winning the debates and who can scream louder. I'm right. They're wrong. So much energy in wanting to convince each other rather than investing some energy in wanting simply to know each other. This is how trust can be rebuilt. And by the way, the next time you're in a political debate with someone with whom you disagree, practice this. Ask your version of what ails you? What do you believe? What do you be love? And in that, you might find space open because maybe the other person, they may not. That's the risk. Maybe the other person will grant you that same space and listen to what ails you. And out of that commonality, you might reach a deeper understanding. One of the most potent images of the Hebrew scriptures is the image of the lion and the lamb lying down together. I think of this picture When I think of that, this is my friend Elizabeth, with whom I was on with many other people, a mindfulness retreat that I took in May. We were in the opening and closing dialogue groups together, and we struck up a friendship and have stayed in touch since. The time when we were at the retreat center, a whole bunch of baby goats were born. And all these meditation folks, very serious, eyes closed, doing their yoga, very earnest, would go out to the baby goats and just completely break down in tears. They would hold these young, vulnerable lives. That's, in many ways, real warriorship. That's like Parsifal. That's getting in touch. Let me think of these words from Mary Oliver, who's a Unitarian Universalist poet that some of you know. She wrote these words, and they really remind me of Parsifal. They remind me of a young and innocent knight. She said, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for hundreds of years across the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love What it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to you in your imagination. Calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting. Over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Tell me your despair. 
what ails you, your grief, your joy, your love, and I will tell you mine. This is how trust, real trust, is built. If we can do this, we will actually receive the world and restore connection and knows not just what ails us, but if we really know what ails us, we can do one other thing. It can also heal us. The ending of the movie points away. The Dark Knight rises in its final battle scene, and yes, Bane and Batman don't sit together and talk about what ails them. (laughs) I'm using metaphorical interpretation of what's going on here. But there is an important lesson there, that Batman is not alone. He's not the single solitary hero who's fighting against what ails them. I mean, that's how the trilogy started eight years ago. Batman on his own. But it's not where it ends. We see in the end hundreds of thousands, hundreds, thousands of people, a community of trust and aspiration. In the Buddhist tradition, they would call that uh, sangha. The community, community of aspiration, of hope, of risk, of love, beloved community, we might call it as well. And it leads me to want to close with this, this wonderful, almost strange teaching from Thich Nhat Hanh, in which he talks about the next Buddha, the next Buddha who will arrive upon the scene. And the Buddha, by the way, is not a noun, it's a verb. Buddha is simply one who is awakened. And Thich Nhat Hanh says the next Buddha the Buddha of the West will come to us as the Sangha. Not one, but many. May we all become the trusted and trusting members, the ailing and healing members of the community that we would hope to see in the world. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Oh, great and powerful divine spark, no matter how small still this flickers within and between and among. May we recognize all the ways in which we have betrayed trust and had trust betrayed. May we give space for the pain we feel with our grief. May we seek not to too powerfully rush through it, pretending it is not there, but instead open to what ails us and open to what ails our neighbor so that we might find in our neighbor a friend. May we form powerful bonds of healing and connection and communion. May we, through our small efforts, be a part of the healing of this world. And when we ask who are the trusted, may we be able to count ourselves among them. Amen.